0: Okay, we are in 1 Peter, we're in a series entitled Living in the Real World, A Disciple's Focus is the title for this message. Uh, we'll start in chapter 1 verse 13 today, verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whenever we see that word therefore, we are to ask the question, what is it therefore? And it's there because Peter is referring back to the first 12 verses of this letter. What he's saying to them is, hey, you have come to trust in in Jesus. You feel like strangers in the world, but you have this solid foundation in Jesus. You were chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father before the foundation of the world to be a son or a daughter of the Father. You are being sanctified in the Spirit. You are being made holy for obedience to Jesus. You've been born to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus into an imperishable inheritance. You are secure. You are guarded by God's power every day. Even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of suffering, you have this inexpressible joy. Your faith is real. You've been privileged with revelation, the revelation of the Messiah. What the Old Testament prophets long for, you've received. An Israeli Jewish girl, her name is Anastasia, she was struggling in life, for her life was meaningless. She described herself as, as confused, as angry, manipulative. She was hurting others. She was hurting herself. She was in a, a self-destructive phase, and she thought, okay, I'm from Jewish background. Maybe I should go back to my Jewish roots, and so she started to pray Jewish prayers. She went to the synagogue, but she said it was like putting a Band-Aid on cancer, She started smoking marijuana, and with the drug, she could at least work up a smile. But her life continued to be empty. She found herself in a sad, empty, lonely place. She couldn't find her way to freedom. She turned to a Messianic Jewish friend, asked her for prayer. She felt like she needed a lawyer, (laughs) She was ridden with guilt, with shame. She felt like she needed a lawyer. Her friend directed her to the scriptures. And one day she was reading in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Some translations, by his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now she read those verses. She questioned, well, who, who is being talked about here? Who is this that bore transgressions? Who is this one that was smitten by God? Who was crushed for our iniquities? And as she prayed about that, she heard from God that was Yeshua, the one forbidden to you, Jesus. And so, as she reread the scriptures, she realized, oh, it was Jesus that was wounded for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, I can be healed. And she surrendered her life to Jesus and was set free. That's revelation. She was privileged by revelation. And if you have come to know Jesus, if you follow him, then today, on this Thanksgiving day, you have every reason for gratitude because you have been privileged by revelation. Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And hope are in in God. So, in these verses, verses 13 to 21, Peter is calling these disciples that have placed their faith in Jesus, he's calling them to walk in holiness based on the new reality that they have experienced. Because they've been born to this living hope, because they've experienced the majestic wonder of what God has done in Jesus, they are to live in a certain way. The way they live flows out of this understanding of their new relationship with God. So what does it mean to be holy in the real world? As some religions would encourage us, encourage us to separate ourselves physically from the world, the contamination of evil in the world. Some religions would encourage you to go, if you want to be holy, go to a monastery in a remote place. Separate yourself Some religious paths would encourage us us to separate ourselves from normal society, so you only relate to certain people. You separate yourself socially, form a colony of the holy ones. Some religions would encourage us to, to practice certain prayers, certain religious rituals, certain baths that somehow will cleanse us of the contamination of the world, What does it mean to be holy in the real world? Peter's main point in these verses is the following. The disciple's way of life, the disciple of Jesus, his or her way of life, it just flows out of an intentional focusing of one's mind and heart on God. If we are to follow the way of Jesus, then it requires an intentional focusing of our minds, our hearts on God while we live in the real world. He talks about this with three commands. The first one is set your hope in verse 13. The second one is be holy in verse 15. And the third one is conduct yourselves with fear in verse 17. let look at the first command, verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So to set your hope is to fix your gaze on something you live your life fully with the end in mind. This hope, it doesn't refer to wishful thinking, naive optimism. It's not like living in B.C. in the month of November and saying, boy, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. (laughs) To hope in the New Testament sense is to look forward with confidence. It's a secure hope. We actually hope for things that will certainly come to pass. So what does it mean to set our hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Peter saying to those disciples, and he would say to us today, you have been chosen by grace. You are born into a living hope by grace. You are being sanctified, made holy by the Spirit. This is grace. You are being guarded every day by God's power and this is grace. You will be glorified by grace when Christ returns. You will actually be transformed into the likeness of Christ. So, this grace, it will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Stake all of your hope on it. Live under its abundance. How can we be so certain that this grace will actually be brought to us. How can we live with such certain hope? Well, first of all, if we are followers of Jesus, then we have this living hope within us. Even in the midst of trial and suffering, there is this inexpressible joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. And not only that, most importantly, we hope for future things because of what has already happened. We have been born to a living hope and that has happened because Jesus actually came. He lived. He died. He rose again. That has happened. Those things are undeniable. And so because of what God has already done, we set our hope on the grace to be revealed. How do we do that? Verse 13. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded set your hope. That word prepare, it means to bind up, gird up. So at the time, people would wear clothing with long flowing robes. And if people wanted to move quickly, then they would gird up those long flowing robes. They would use belts so that they could actually move quickly. We see this in Exodus chapter 12. The people of Israel, they're celebrating the Passover for the first time, and the instruction to them is that they should put their sandals on, fasten their belts, that's that same word, prepare, gird up, bind up, be ready, walking sticks in hand, be ready to move. Uh, Jesus uses the same language in Luke chapter 12 when he talks to his disciples about his return. He says, prepare, gird up, bind up, be ready. And then being sober-minded, that just means be self-controlled, be clear-minded. Boy, that's hard in our day. I find it more and more difficult to be sober-minded, to be clear-minded, because we just suffer this barrage of unending messages, whether it be through the media, through Facebook, Twitter. If you're at all connected to the world out there, you are being inundated With information, with messages. People vying for your attention. If we are going to set our hope on the grace to be revealed... If we're going to set our hope fully on that grace in the real world, in every sense of the word, our minds need to be prepared. (laughs) We have to be ready for the challenge each day. If we are going to think clearly, if we are going to make good decisions, then we need to learn to prepare our minds. One commentator writes the following, Thomas Schreiner, There is a way of living that becomes dull to the reality of God that is anesthetized by the attractions of this world. When people are lulled into such drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself and concentrate only on fulfilling their earthly desires. And he could have added their earthly desires of the moment. We're bombarded by messages. Messages we're encouraged to live in the moment and we lose sight of the hope, of the future hope. Peter knew all about this. He knew about drowsiness. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples that he would go to the cross, and Peter said to Jesus very boldly, very courageously, I will die with you. And then just a short time later, Jesus asked his disciples to stay alert and to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter falls asleep. A few hours later, he denies Jesus three times. He knew what it meant to not be prepared, to not be ready for the challenge. And so he encourages the readers of this letter, prepare your minds, be sober-minded, set your hope. Sometimes we're just running so fast we appear to be intoxicated. We're carried by the waves of our society, so we need to stop. We need to meditate on the truths of Scripture. Allow them to fill our minds, nourish our souls. The first point on your outline, based on the living hope we have been born into, we walk with minds focused on the final goal. We walk with our minds focused on the final goal. Here's a picture of what that looks like. Uh, Joanne Collins, uh, the wife of Jim Collins. Jim Collins is the author of a Well known book, Good to Great. Joanne began racing marathons and uh, triathlons in the early 1980s. As she accumulated some experience, she grew in confidence. She began to feel the momentum of success. And so she entered this triathlon, and despite many obstacles, she managed to finish in the top 10. A few weeks later, she was sitting at breakfast with her husband, reading the newspaper. And then very calmly, she put down her newspaper and she said to herself and to Jim, I think I can win the Ironman. The Ironman, the world championship of triathlons, it begins with four kilometers of swimming. That in and of itself would kill me. Four kilometers of swimming. That is followed by 180 kilometers of cycling. And if you're still on your feet, then you run for 42 kilometers along the lava-baked coast of Hawaii. Was she delusional? What was she thinking? To win the Ironman, she would have to quit her job. She had a number of offers to graduate school. She would have to delay those opportunities. The interesting thing was that she didn't try to persuade herself or Jim. She simply observed that she had come to understand that this was a fact. She had the passion to win and she had the genetics. And if she would train and win races, she would have the money to compete as well. She was within the realm of possibility, she was not delusional. So she quit her job. She turned down the offers to graduate schools. She started to train. Three years later, on a hot October day in 1985, she won the Ironman, world champion. She had set her hope. She had focused her mind on the goal that she had set for herself. Now that's an example of what Peter is talking about. He says to us as disciples of Jesus, set your hope on the final goal. Live with the end in mind. Focus your mind on what God has called you to. Now, in our world, we have to be intentional. We talked about this a number of weeks ago. If we are not intentional, if we do not separate time to be with God, to sit in his presence, if we don't have a time and a place when we meet with God, we will be carried by the waves of this world our minds will be filled with all of the messages that are coming from all of those people that are vying for our attention. We will be carried. We will not have our minds focused on what God has for us. So find your time. Find your place. It might be your bedroom. It might be an office, a den. It might be a closet. It might be in your car. But one thing is not optional. If we Are to follow Jesus in this day, in the 21st century, we have to be intentional. We have to be focused. We need to set our hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we don't, we'll be carried away. Then Peter goes on. First chapter, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the one who called them was God himself, God the Father. He brought them from darkness to light through Jesus. These words You shall be holy for I am holy. They come right out of the Old Testament scriptures. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2. The first time that those words were spoken to the people of Israel, they were wandering. They were wandering from Egypt to the promised land. And God spoke to them as they were wandering, as they felt like strangers in the world. Be holy for I am holy. The people that Peter is writing to, they feel like strangers in the world. They are called to be holy as well. He's saying, Hey, the God who called you according to his foreknowledge, he is the one who is unchangeably good and hates evil. You are to be like him with your new vision of reality. And this is not delusion. Now that you have been born to a living hope, now that you know Jesus, now that the Holy Spirit lives within you, now that you have been born to this inexpressible joy, be like your Father. It's what you're called to. Be transformed and live in a new way. It's not so much about saying no to a whole bunch of stuff. It's not about removing yourself from the world. It's not about being socially separated. It's about knowing God, having your eyes focused on Him. Verse 14, Peter says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That word passions, it it refers to your heart affections, uh, your strong desires, your lusts, anything that is self-seeking. Peter, later on in the letter, he says that, hey, for some of you, the former things, it was drinking parties. This is not new. it goes back centuries to the beginning of human history. He says, for some of you, it was sensuality. For some of you, it was orgies this is what consumed you for some of you it was idolatry for some a relentless striving after success for others a relentless search for identity for others the accumulation of wealth for some just racking up status symbols this is what your life was about this was your former ignorance don't be conformed to that anymore Peter saying your whole way of living, your way of seeing, your behavior, it was formed by these impulses, these passions, these heart desires to feed your identity, to feed your self-satisfaction. But now, you can live differently because you've been born to a living hope. Truth has been revealed to you. You have met Jesus. You know the Father. Why would you go back? Why would you go back to those unsatisfying ways? The beautiful thing is that when we cry out, God hears our cries. (laughs) So, God bless that child. He has a father, that's a good thing. It's a good reminder, you know, that we as children of the Father, when we cry out, he actually hears us. Even before we utter our prayer, he knows our cry, he knows what's in our hearts, And because that is true, we are called to be holy, to walk in holiness. The central thought of this section is make holiness your trademark. Be like your father in your whole way of life. Radiate the reality of your father in a very confused society, a very dark world. Don't run from it, remain in it, and walk in the living hope that God has given you. This passage doesn't spell out every decision that you should make in life. It doesn't give you a word for every moment of your life. But it does identify where your heart affection should be set. It does tell you where you should be focused, where your conduct should be grounded. In God himself. So the second point in your outline, based on the living hope we have been born into, we walk with eyes fixed on the one, the only one, God himself, our Father. So this is really important to remember. As I said, we are bombarded by many different messages. There are many that are vying for our attention. There are many that are setting themselves up as models for us. And it's really important to remember that the only one that can serve as model for us, the only one that can show us what it means to be, what it means to live, what it means to be holy is the Father himself. Your fellow students can't do this for you. Your professors can't do this for you. Your nuclear family can't do it for you. Neither can the extended family. Your favorite musicians can't do this for you. Your favorite actors can't do this for you. Not even the most influential people in the world can do this for you. The only one worthy of showing you what it means to be, what it means to live, what it means to be whole, what it means to be holy is God himself. God says in Isaiah 55, verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. God is different to focus our eyes on him. Verse 14, so as obedient children, be holy in all your conduct. We must be conformed to the character of the Father as Jesus was. What a beautiful picture in Scripture for us of Jesus... Spending time with the Father. I believe it's 45 times in the Gospels, Jesus separates himself from the crowds to be with the Father. He hears the voice of the Father. He knows that voice. Everything that he says, everything that he does, is in response to what the Father has told him to do. That's the picture of discipleship. Jesus says in John chapter 10, if we are his disciples, then we know his voice. So, any child that has a loving parent will be intimate with that parent, will know the voice of that parent, will recognize it. In a crowd of voices, will recognize the voice of the parent. And a child that has a loving parent will want to be like the parent. If we are children of the Father, then the desire within us will be to be like the Father. The Christian way of living does not begin with a whole bunch of do's, a bunch of don'ts, a whole list of things that we should remove from our lives. That's not how it begins. It begins with a call to God, to focus our eyes on God, the one who has called us. And this focus determines our way of seeing, our way of thinking our way of living. It changes everything. You see, when our way of living originates in God, holiness becomes something we desire. It becomes something really practical, really earthy. Rather than physical separation, rather than social separation, we just walk with the Father in the real world, by the Spirit. We follow the way of Jesus, and we act as He would. We carry on conversation the way Jesus would. With family, with friends, with colleagues. This is the heart, our heart desire. It can only be our heart desire if our heart affection is set on the Father. Let's continue reading. Chapter 1, verse 17. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It's interesting. In the original, these verses are just one long sentence. Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So live your whole way of life here on earth with reverence For God. You call on him as father. You invoke him as father. Jesus taught you to pray this way. You're in an intimate relationship with the father. But don't forget that the one you call father is also your judge. The father is tender. He's also righteous. The father is loving. He's also just. Remember... That through your knowledge of Jesus, you came to redemption. But it was also through that knowledge of Jesus that you came to understand your sinfulness, your separation from God, that you came to understand God's wrath upon sin. So, based on the living hope that you've been born into, walk with fear as strangers in the world, for two reasons. God, our Father, is also our judge. We fear, we revere, we honor, we stand in awe because our father judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Peter writes. We all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, believers and unbelievers. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse nine. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we will all stand before Jesus, but the good news is that the Father, he judges impartially, without favoritism. This fear of God is not a paralyzing terror. It's not meant to immobilize us. It's meant to encourage us to be super sober-minded, clear-minded. It doesn't undermine our confident hope in God. Rather, it encourages us to actually set our hope on the grace that will be brought to us. It encourages us to fix our gaze on God. From a biblical perspective, those that don't fear God are the foolish ones. It's a society that no longer fears God, that is dizzy. Rex Murphy He wrote an editorial in the National Post on July 28th, and he was reflecting on our 150th anniversary celebrations in Canada. And this is what he wrote. We are in an era where celebration has adopted a peculiar mode, that of the confession of sins not our own. That the past had its sins and crimes is beyond all denial, But the rather zealous recounting of them implies a curious exemption from like failings in those who so piously enumerate them in our present. But quite wonderfully, implicit in the apology for the sin of another is that it is not one's own, or indeed ever could be. It is the cry of the Pharisee. Every such apology is the vessel for a sly boast. There is no Moral turmoil in apologizing for the sins of someone else. This has become so common in our day. Apologizing for the sins of former generations. And this is not to deny that our forefathers have sinned. But we are hypocritical. We are to be pitied. We are gravely misled if we think that we are righteous because we confess the sins of former generations. We will stand before God and be judged according to our own deeds, not the deeds of former generations. We will be judged for the sins of our generation. And so to fear God, To acknowledge that God is our Father, but also our Judge, that is the first step toward holiness, toward sanity, toward wisdom. So, does this mean that our salvation hangs in the balance? Does this mean that we have to earn it, just do better? It's not unusual for people that have been members of the church for most of their lives, in their final days, to ask the question, I wonder if I did enough to merit salvation. Did I do enough? And that's why this second point here under fear of God is so important, because we also fear God based on our awareness of how redemption happened, how it happened. This plan of redemption, it didn't have its origin in a human heart. It had its origin in the heart of God. Before the foundation of the world, before the universe was ever created, God decided to set his affection on us. The Father chose us. That's what the scriptures say. Before the foundation of the world, the Father chose Jesus, his very own son, to come and die for us. Jesus decided to come, live among us. He emptied himself, went to the cross. Died on our behalf. His blood was spilt. The perfect sacrifice. Fully man. Fully God. Dying for the sins of humanity. His innocent blood shed for our ransom so that we could be bought back. The Father knew from before the foundation of the world that we would never, ever, ever be righteous enough. That there would be no way for us to merit our salvation. That's why he sent Jesus. So Peter asks, why would you return to your former passions? Why would you return to your futile ways? Verses 18 and 19, Peter writes, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ, he says. That word futile, it means lacking reality. It is senseless, worthless, vain, We have received, he says, from our forefathers futile ways. Coming to Jesus, we were released from the enslaved patterns of our forefathers. Do we find that offensive? Would you agree with Peter? These verses, they open up a window into what God thinks about human religion. In the scriptures... Other religions are never applauded. The scriptures never say that religious effort, that is a noble effort. That is to be applauded. You're trying to gain redemption? I applaud you. The scriptures never say that. Why? Why? Because the only way that we could ever be redeemed would be through the sacrifice of Jesus, God's very own son. It would cost Jesus his blood. And that's why human religion is futile, worthless, vain. Even Paul, born into Judaism, Hebrew of Hebrews, from the tribe of Benjamin, he looks on his heritage in Philippians chapter 3 and he says, rubbish! in comparison with the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So Peter here, he's not encouraging his disciples to dishonor their parents or to dishonor their grandparents. That's not what he's talking about. He's just saying, if you have come to know Jesus, if you have been born to this living hope, don't go back to the futile ways of your forefathers focus your mind, prepare your mind, be sober-minded, set your hope on the grace to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus. You were bought back. You went from death to life by the sacrifice of an imperishable, indestructible life. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So the highest price imaginable was paid. God himself dying in our place. He says in these verses, gold and silver are absolutely nothing in comparison. We may think they're of value, but they are worth nothing in comparison with Jesus. October uh, 31st of this year will be the celebration of 500 years since the Reformation. One of the things that really disturbed the Reformers was that in their day, in the 16th century... The church was encouraging parishioners to pay for the forgiveness of their sins. It's called indulgences. And so people actually believed that with silver or gold, they would be able to pay to have their sins forgiven. They would spend less time in purgatory, they would spend no time in hell if they paid the church. The reformers found this to be repulsive a mockery of what God had done in Christ. Whenever we go back to our futile ways, whenever we think that we can work for our salvation, that we can somehow, in our own righteousness, manipulate our way into heaven, we deny the value of Christ's sacrifice. We demonstrate that we really don't understand. Each New Year's Day, A large Anglican church in London celebrates the Lord's Supper together with other churches in the area. And on one of these New Year's Year's Days, uh, a Supreme Court judge was present at the church service during the Lord's Supper. He went to the front to receive the bread and the cup. And while he was doing that, a very well-known criminal also went to the front and received the bread and the cup. After the service was over, the Supreme Court judge, he was leaving the church, and he greeted the bishop. And he commented with the bishop, did you see the criminal participating in the Lord's Supper with me? And the bishop said, oh, you noticed. And the Supreme Court judge said, yes, an example of the grace of God. The bishop replied, oh, that criminal, he actually came to faith in one of our congregations recently. And the judge responded, I actually was referring to myself. Because that criminal, he was desperate. No family, unemployed. He knew that he needed salvation. I, on the other hand, I was born into privilege. I was born into a Christian family. I was well-educated. I studied law at Oxford. It was only by the grace of God that I came to the realization that I actually needed salvation. It was only by the grace of God that I saw my arrogance, my pride, my selfishness, my blindness. I was saved by the grace of God. Peter begins and ends these verses with hope. You know, in the first verses of the chapter, he says that, you know, the disciples of Jesus have been born to a living hope. And now they are to set their hope on the grace to be revealed, the grace to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They are to live, they are to walk with their minds focused on the final goal. They are to walk with their eyes fixed on the one, the only one, God himself. They are to walk with fear as strangers in the world for two reasons. God is their father and their judge and they know the cost of their salvation, God's very own son. It cost Jesus his blood. Our salvation cost God's very own son his blood. And that's why we walk with fear. Peter writes, your faith and your hope are in God. Everything depends on God. This is the climax of the whole thing, the way that he ends this passage. If we have faith and hope in God in 2017, whether we are an Israeli girl strung out on drugs or a Supreme Court judge born into privilege, if we have faith and hope in God in 2017, it's because we've come to believe in God. We've come to know his son, Jesus, and we have been born. Born to a living hope by the grace of God and that hope is imperishable. And so on this Thanksgiving weekend if we have come to know Jesus we are most privileged. We have received the revelation that Old Testament prophets longed for. We are most privileged. We have come to know the way the truth and the life. And so, as you celebrate this Thanksgiving weekend, walk with gratitude for the life that Jesus has given you, the living hope, the inexpressible joy that is yours in the midst of some trial and some suffering. Don't be surprised by the way that you feel, feeling like a stranger in the world, the reason that you feel that way is because the Spirit is within you and your eyes have been opened to God and the reality of the world around you. It's only in Jesus that we can live in the real world with sanity, in holiness, for the glory of God of God. Be light in the world where God has placed you. Be the person that God has called you to be where you are. We live in a world that is desperate for the reality of God. May God bless you. May God use you this week. And if you don't know Jesus, the Father invites you. The Father invites you to life. He invites you to know Jesus. He invites you to be born to a living hope, to inexpressible joy. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to pray for those of you that are disciples of Jesus, that you will walk in the reality of what Peter talks about. I'm also going to pray for those of you that have never surrendered your lives to Jesus. This is a moment. It's between you and God. It's not between you and me or between you and this church. It's between you and God. It's an opportunity for you to say yes to Jesus. Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, I pray first of all for those that have never surrendered their lives to you. And if that is you and you want to give your life to Jesus today, if you want to be born to a living hope, I ask that you pray with me. Father, I need you. Father, I need a new hope, a new meaning, a new peace. I turn from my ways. I turn from my attempts. I turn from my sin and I turn to you and I thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to die for my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price that I could never pay. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the gift of eternal life Father, I ask that you send your spirit to live within me, to empower me to follow Jesus, to live this life that you have invited me into. I thank you that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are present. I surrender my life to you. I ask you, Jesus, to be the Lord of my life. Guide me by your spirit. If you prayed that prayer I'd encourage you to talk to the person that brought you or to go to the Welcome Center. Don't leave without talking with someone today. And now, Lord, I pray for all of us that are your followers, your sons and daughters. I I pray, Lord, that we would set our hope, that we would fix our minds on the grace that will be brought to us when Christ returns. I pray that we would fix our minds on the final goal. I pray that we would be sober-minded, clear-minded. I pray that we would live with our eyes fixed on you, Lord. I pray that we would walk in reverence. Because you are our Father, you are also our judge. So, Lord, may we remember the cost of our salvation. That it cost you, Jesus, your very own blood. May we walk with gratitude. Thank you that we don't have to work, strive for our redemption. Thank you that it is ours by grace through faith in you, Jesus. May we share this wonderful, wonderful story, the, the wonderful truth of who you are, Jesus. May it be on our lips. May it be reflected in our lives. May we be light in the world today. Use us for your glory, we pray, God. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend.